this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Mura, her autobiography, written by Mura Limpany with Margot Strickland and published in 1991 by Peter Owens. Chapter 7 44 Bruton Place, Mayfair Ten wonderful years had passed since Bennett and I had married. Our life together was cloudless. There was no warning that shortly I was to enter on a long and painful period of my life. All this time I had given concerts in the United States, but had resisted most blandishments and pressures from my agents, Ibs and Tillett, to tour overseas. Finally I did agree to the persuasions of Emmy Tillett, managing director of the firm and a personal friend, to absent myself from my adored husband and go to Australia. I was to be away for five weeks. Before such tours, artists engaged are sent a booklet, for considerable preparation and planning is essential some time in advance, quite apart from the musical program itself. The public is unaware of this. Itineraries are made by the tour promoters, hotels are researched and booked, and we, the performers, are expected to familiarize ourselves and adhere to what has been arranged for us. The standard of Australian hotel accommodation has improved enormously in recent years, I was assured, both in the capital cities and main provincial centres. Modern hotels now cater for the most fastidious tastes. Australian hotels were often far better than British ones. I could be playing as many as twenty-five different composers, which meant a large amount of sheet music. I preferred to carry this separately from my other luggage. I needed it with me to study on the journey, and also I was afraid of losing it and felt it was safer in my hands. And the clothes we would be wearing on and off the platform, according to the variations in weather and climate, also amounted to a great deal of weighty luggage. A woman artist owning a fur coat should bring it with her if she is to arrive after mid-March, I was advised. We were warned not to overlook arranging a visa for the return journey. There were three types of visas, one, transit, two, visitors, and three, working. Five to six weeks' notice was necessary for any trips to India or the Philippines, Japan or the USSR. My contract provided for the fare to be paid by the Australian Broadcasting Commission, and I must not perform for any other management without first seeking permission from the ABC, and any en route engagements would mean a proportion of the fee would be due to ABC by the management concerned. Directly, the contract had been signed, photographs and publicity material must be forwarded, for the media planners arrange printing and press conferences months ahead. No old photographs, please, and photographs that you would rather we did not use. We need the best you can give us. 
so sittings with photographers had to be booked, hair and makeup and clothes organized for them first. It will be seen that, music apart, the preparation required all my time and attention. Any unauthorized change in the program cost us ten percent of the fee. Program changes irritate concert audiences, we were told, and mar broadcasts. Recital programs which are performed several times must be carefully rationed to avoid overmuch repetition. On my return journey from Australia on an earlier visit, in 1948, I think, when I was still married to Colin de Vries, the flying boat landed at Surabaya, where the second pilot took over and prepared to take off again for Singapore. My seat was next to a window which looked out over one of the flying boat's wings. When the aircraft turned, prior to taking off, its engines revving up violently and very loudly, I saw to my horror that on the turn the pilot had not kept the aircraft level, and the one float on my side was, instead of above the water, submerged, beating against the water, trying to get free. "'The float's gone!' I screamed above the deafening roar of engines. One of the officers came running to the passengers to instruct us what to do. We were to take off our shoes and climb out of the emergency exits. "'Follow me,' he called. I was nearest to the door and shot out to find myself on a perpendicular wing high in the air. I said to him, "'Put your arms around me.' My stockinged feet had no hold on the surface, and I was sliding down it. "'I haven't any pants on,' replied the man. He had taken off his trousers and was wearing only his underpants. "'I don't care what you've got on,' I screamed. "'I can't swim, and there are sharks down there.' We clung on to the wing of the crippled flying boat for some time. No one dared come near us for fear any attempt to right the flying boat would tip it fatally into the sea.' We were taken off just in time to see the aircraft turn turtle and sink before our eyes. I never saw my shoes again, and all the crew's luggage was lost, but ours was recovered. When we reached Singapore, there were amazing reports in the newspapers headlined, Slight Mishap to Flying Boat. There was a slight mishap to the flying boat coming to Singapore yesterday, but after a certain time it was able to take off. And it was at the bottom of the sea. On my first night home in New York, after being away on what had seemed an unconscionably long journey, Bennett pressed me to go to a party to be given for the great Spanish painter Salvador Dali by a young friend of Bennett's, a girl in her twenties. I learned afterwards that our hostess had decided a few weeks earlier that it was time for her to settle down and marry. She had two men in mind, one of whom was my husband Bennett. During my absence in Australia, she had made a dead set at him and had in fact seduced him. Never had I dreamed this could happen to me. I had felt utterly secure. Suddenly my world was shattered. For twenty years I had been cherished, first by Colin then by Bennett. Now I was cast out into a terrible abyss, a wilderness without direction. I was lost and alone in an apartment on East 68th Street. 
Fortunately, I had many friends, so I was not entirely abandoned. At one party I met a member of the overseas corps diplomatique, a charming, cultured man seven and a half years older than myself. He, too, was going through a very difficult personal crisis, more tragic than mine, for his wife had recently committed suicide. We fell in love with each other on the rebound, and although our friendship continued for over a year, there seemed to be no real future in it for either of us. But our involvement had helped to heal our respective wounds, and we remained friends. It was not easy either for me to pick up the threads of my career, which had played a secondary role in my life since my marriage to Bennett. Americans worship success, and the failure of my marriage affected my playing disastrously. I had lost confidence in myself completely, and wailed to all my friends that I was finished personally and professionally. One of the tender aspects of my life at this time was my growing love for my young nephew and godson, Christopher Johnston, then in his teens. He had had a difficult childhood, for his parents, my brother Tony and his Austrian wife Dita, had parted, and the boy seemed to be pushed from pillar to post, staying with different people. He came to stay with me, and became a great friend. He was musical and artistically sensitive, a charming, attractive, and highly intelligent youth. With me he had a kind of security neither of his parents, either temperamentally, emotionally, or materially, was able to give him, and gradually the aunt-nephew relationship evolved into almost a mother-son one. It was the most wonderful balm for me to be lent, as it were, Christopher, to be my surrogate son. I recall one occasion when he turned up at my apartment just as I was about to set off for a smart wedding reception on Fifth Avenue. He was driving a borrowed car, a terrible old French Citroën 2CV, literally falling to pieces and tied up with string. He could have it for fifty dollars, he explained with a hopeful grin. Of course I gave him the money. He offered to drive me to Fifth Avenue, and I thought, why not? Dressed in a mink jacket, jewels, high-heeled shoes, and a fabulously pretty hat, I entered the old jalopy. My beloved nephew got in behind the steering wheel, and we both felt like a million dollars. When the uniformed doorman saw the decrepit vehicle draw up outside his establishment, he tried to stop us parking, and viewed Christopher with scorn, ordering him to drive on. But Christopher leapt out, and ran round the car to escort his Aunt Mora, in her finery with great ceremony, into the building. People do not realize that musicians are like actors. We live for our work. Sir John Gilgood gave an address to New York University which taught me a great deal at that long, low point in my life. He said that every artist experiences a bad patch. His bad patch caused him great anguish. He could do nothing right. He had bad reviews for his work. His confidence went. His timing was affected. He began to exaggerate, overact, or underplay. He endured, and emerged a stronger, better actor than before, finally accepting a minor role and making a great success. Laurence Olivier wrote similarly about his bad patch. My separation and subsequent divorce from Bennett, 
upset me unutterably. I seemed to be in a terrifying downward spiral from which only drastic action could pull me back. For nine months I had been in a state of mental suicide. I was not interested in anything whatsoever. The whole point of my life had gone. I did not want to see anyone, practice, or anything. My career was going badly. I could see only a few friends, to whom I poured out my misery repeatedly every time we met. Friends can listen for only so long. My doctors gave me sleeping pills. I didn't care about anything. I told my doctor the only time I was happy was when I took sleeping pills and forgot my misery. This state of affairs continued for a year or more. Do you realize what sleeping pills do to you? A Swiss doctor I met at a party asked me. Then he told me, They deaden your brain, and you won't feel anything any more. If you go on taking pills, your memory will go. I considered what he said and decided there was enough love of music left in me for me to appreciate the damage I was inflicting on myself. I went home and threw all the pills down the loo, and I have never taken sleeping pills since. Discipline took over my life. I decided to go back to England. Perhaps, after all, America was not for me. I had not lived in London since early in the war when I had occupied a small room in Paddington furnished with the bare necessities and an upright piano. But my time in New York, married to a high-profile television executive, had created a different Mora, a somewhat Americanized one. In New York I had met the lovely, elegant English actress Margaret Leighton, whose short, passionate marriage to the Lithuanian-born actor Lawrence Harvey had come to an end. On my occasional visits to England to play, I had rented her house to stay in, preferring the independence it offered to an hotel. It was a muse house in Mayfair, 44 Bruton Place, just off Berkeley Square. She and Lawrence Harvey had been idyllically happy in the house. During the war, 44 Bruton Place had been converted into three flats, the top-floor tenant had been the composer of such marvellous songs as These Foolish Things. So inspired was he by Berkeley Square, its lovely, leafy trees and, despite the bombing, the nightingales he heard singing there, that he composed A Nightingale Sang in Berkeley Square. Glenn Miller's arrangement of this song was top of the hit parade in the forties. I took on the lease. Grey skies, grey streets, and the house itself was lugubrious. I must have colour, the sun. I started with a tangerine and lemon casapupo rug, the cheapest rug in London. You must decorate how you feel, said Mr. Fleming of Mann and Fleming, the shop I went to for advice. It must be an expression of yourself. I want it gay, gay. Gay, I told him, a happy house, a lovely atmosphere, a sunny atmosphere. Mr. Fleming sent me a young designer called Martin Thomas, who transformed the house. Lawrence Harvey's favorite colors were black and purple. The house was almost entirely carpeted in purple, and Doric columns had been erected in several rooms. The dining room was carpeted in black, and black velvet covered the Jacobean chairs. A black marble table supported by golden eagles dominated the dining room. Not my style at all. 
Emmy Tillett came to see it. Emmy was a Sagittarius. Her brisk manner often frightened people, but she was the kindest, most sympathetic friend who had spent over thirty years dealing with the foremost artists in the musical world. "'Get rid of this!' she exclaimed. I knew then that she would obtain enough work for me to help pay for the redecoration of the house. I am an extrovert. I like colors. I like people. I like entertaining. The garage, where earlier horses had been stabled, made an excellent reception room, leading into the music room, where once carriages were kept, which was perfect for large parties. Martin and I scattered more Spanish Casapupo rugs over the floors, while signed portraits of family, friends, including European royal personages, stood on draped tables. A Tunisian birdcage hung from the ceiling. Poster-hued pictures I had brought back from my tour of Australia brightened up the walls. Wrought iron gates led to an almost perpendicular staircase, up which one hauled oneself by means of a rope to the first floor, which had a kitchen and a roof space that cried out to be made into a patio garden. More stairs led up to the large drawing-room, along with an ensuite bedroom and bathroom. Martin's genius made the house beautiful with vibrant colors everywhere. I told him I wanted it to look Cecil Beaton-ish, but in fact I found, with Martin to interpret it, my own style. I wanted it to be modern. My bed, shocking pink, was heaped with red fox fur pelts given to me by a friend. Vermilion and yellow cushions cascaded along three divans with potted palms and tropical plants in the anteroom to the music room. I wanted to look young and modern, too. I put away my gold and diamond wristwatch and embraced fun fashion with zest. Phosphorescent lime-green stockings, matching watch-strap shoes, skirt, with fuchsia and lilac ensembles I wore matching watch-straps and stockings and shoes. I simply adored these lively things and plunged into my new London life with enthusiasm. Edwina Sandis, Mrs. Piers Dixon, said, "'Why don't you invite a few of us to your new house?' I told her it wasn't ready. She said that they would be coming to see me, not the house. So I gave my first party. Edwina said to Martin, "'I don't like it.' Martin asked her why. She said, "'You come out of the grey sky, the grey street, into a Mexican sunshine room.' To which Martin replied, "'But that is exactly what Moore wants. Bright colours, flowers, sunshine.' However, resuming and developing my career proved no simple matter. The truth was that I had been virtually forgotten by the music world. I had been away too long. A whole new generation of young whiz-kids at the piano had come up, and I was eclipsed. I did not have what most of the young have now, that is, security in myself, self-security or self-confidence. Despite my determined efforts to fill every hour of every day with activity of every kind, in my solitary moments my thoughts returned again and again to the man I had left behind in New York. About this time I found a beautiful Mercedes 3001D for sale for £200. It was automatic, very big, and with a left-hand drive. Nobody wanted it, 
I consulted my friend and agent, Emmy Tillett. "'You buy it, Mora,' she advised, "'and forget that man.' "'How can I forget him?' I wailed. "'You could drive yourself to the country,' Emmy said. "'So I bought it and derived enormous pleasure "'from driving in and out of London. "'When I gave a party, I drove the car out of the garage "'and the space was transformed into a reception area.' I could not stand the English weather, and nor could I stand the long and miserable English winters. One day I thought that if I had a greenhouse, I could try to grow things during the winter months, and then I would not notice the horrible weather. There was a skylight in the roof of my study, and it occurred to me that if one could open it up and reach the flat roof of the adjacent bathroom, one might be able to erect a greenhouse there. I excitedly consulted Martin. He quickly removed the glass, leant a ladder against the opening, and we both ran up it to see the whole of London spread out below us. Selfridges supplied the greenhouse, electricity and heating were installed, and quite soon I was growing guavas, mangoes, and melons, together with passion and other exotic fruits. From my journeys I brought back seeds or cuttings and spent many happy hours working in my greenhouse. Martin's specialty was color coordination. Together we discovered the joys of needlework, especially tapestry, Florentine work, which was quick, so that in weeks instead of years one could see results. We became really hooked on this, and with his genius Martin adapted the old 17th century Florentine designs based on zigzag stitches, sometimes known as Hungarian point or bargello, into boldly geometric designs. Trellises, diamonds, squares, and basket-weave patterns in heavenly graduating colors from white through palest apricot to burnt orange, brown, and gold and flame. Martin was very professional in everything he did, and ultimately a publisher took him up, which resulted in several books of Martin's needlework designs being published, illustrated with color photographs, of cushions I had worked. The rapid technical advances made in transmission and recording greatly affected the music world. Some artists could not cope with the stress of the new technology. Myra Hess, for example, was terrified of the recording studio. We are all terrified of the red light, but it did not inhibit me. When the red light came on in the recording studio, I got down to work and usually only a few takes were necessary. But the loss of individuality in music-making did sadden me. When I went to see Sir Clifford Curzon in his beautiful house in Highgate on the edge of Hampstead Heath, he said to me, Mora, there was a time when you could listen to the third program and know immediately after a few bars who was playing. If it was Moiseevich, I would say, That's Benno. That's not possible now. I had to agree with him. One of the features that made music a wonderful and unique experience was passing away, sacrificed to technical perfection. When I went to stay with Herbert von Karajan and his glamorous model wife, Eliette, at their heavenly chalet in St. Moritz, it was winter sports time, and the exhilarating mountain air should have made me happy but I arrived in a very downcast mood nothing could dispel. I had had a review which had terribly upset me. 
it complained that I had played more wrong notes than I should have. Carrion was such a dear man. He was the most exciting man, too, taking enormous risks, flying his own jet all over the world, benefiting his fellow artists by persuading the hard-headed Japanese businessmen who ran Sony to set up Sony Classics in Austria. On my arrival, Iliette was nowhere to be seen. She was a gifted artist and was immured in her studio painting. Karyan, dressed in a floor-length, vibrantly-colored kaftan, showed me to my room. To Karyan I dared to whinge. Then, alluding to my bad review, I shrugged and said, So what? The music is more important. Karyan shook his head. No, Mura, he said quietly. Today you must play the right notes. People expect it. You can't get away with it any more. And he quoted a concert-goer who said he preferred Rubinstein's records to his live performance. There were fewer wrong notes. Karyan was right. We three took long, healthy walks among the snowy peaks, which, together with the superb companionship and excellent food, revived my spirits. I loved our meals together. We would all talk at once, and on one occasion I had the temerity to say to them, If one of you would stay silent, I could answer your questions one by one. While I was in America, I had played at the University of Maryland, where an important competition is held annually. In England I sat on the jury of the prestigious Leeds Piano Competition, founded by Fanny Waterman. The excitement and drama of these competitions are tremendous. Some people deplore them, but I am not one of them. I am all in favor of them because they give young pianists something to work for and help them build a great deal of necessary endurance and self-confidence. The danger is when executants conclude that there is a difference between playing for an audience and playing for a jury. I don't think there is any difference between the two. Artists should never believe audiences don't know. Of course, I have attended competitions where I disagreed with the verdicts, but this is part of life. There are so many facets to the issue of temperament. Some younger pianists today, perhaps in their zeal to become total musicians, unwisely try to deny some of their natural tendencies. There was a young German pianist who had been extraordinarily successful in the United States playing Beethoven, but when I heard him play in the finals of the Queen Elizabeth competition in Brussels, a competition in which, as I noted earlier, I myself had won the second prize when I was twenty-one, he misguidedly selected the Rachmaninoff second piano concerto. I love this concerto and have played it all my life, but I really felt it was all wrong for him, physically and emotionally. He did not win, and I think he might have done had he played Beethoven. The older I grow, the more convinced I am that there are universal truths to all great teaching and great playing. In their writings, Gieskind, Neuhaus, and Arau all stress principles. People tend to get bogged down in this issue of piano tone being instantaneous, and therefore conclude that what you do after tone is achieved makes no difference. This is true for the tone you have just sounded, but the point is that the condition of your hand and arm makes all the difference for the next note you sound. 
the ideas of Uncle Tobbs had universal relevance, and I was so delighted to find his ideas increasingly admired, respected, and followed in America, where a Matai Foundation was created. One of the happinesses of my life in London was that my nephew, Christopher Johnston, was near me. He had won a scholarship to an American university where he had studied the history of art and, having graduated, he was now working at the Tate Gallery. His ambition at this time was to research and write a book about the mid-nineteenth century romantic painter of biblical scenes, John Martin, which he did. It was published with great success in 1974. His father, my brother Tony, had moved to the United States, where he remarried and fathered three more sons, all charming boys. In London I met heaps of new people as well as renewing old friendships. I enjoyed my career, traveling and hopping on and off aircraft as if they were buses going along Piccadilly. I was described as bouncy, chirrupy, cheerful, and completely feminine. One day I was strolling down Bond Street when I heard music, good music. I was stopped in my tracks by it and saw a young couple playing their instruments outside Fenwick's. "'You play very well,' I exclaimed, and they smiled. "'We are trained musicians,' they told me, "'and we wanted to come to London to get married here, but we have no money.' They were French. "'We studied at the Conservatoire,' they added, "'but we have been unable to get a job.' I gave them some money, Moreover, so impressed was I by this talented man and girl that I also gave them the name and telephone number of someone who might be able to help them get work. Later, when I played at Newcastle-upon-Tyne, one of the orchestra came up to me after the concert. It was the girl I had seen in Bond Street, the bride. "'Remember me?' she asked, smiling. "'We're married now, and we are both working, thanks to that introduction you gave us.' At a dinner party given by Lord and Lady Errol of Hale, I met a most interesting and attractive man, Edward Heath. We were exact contemporaries, and found we had a great deal in common. He was and is one of the most musically conscious people I know. He was not an easy man to talk to, but I am a great talker, and I made up for both of us. He had a deep love, even a passion, for music having won an organ scholarship to Balliol College, Oxford. This English church tradition in music, somewhat austere, had almost completely passed me by. It could be said that I had hardly been aware of it in my career. Ted Heath had an excellent mind, complete integrity, and no small talk. He was a serious, ambitious politician." When Ted and I met we were both unattached, and the press quickly seized on our friendship as gossip fodder. Ted was a bachelor, but he liked women, and although he was shy, when his love of music, or the sea, broke down his shyness, he became affable. "'Music takes the chill off public life,' he explained. My most cherished London friends were Rearsby and Penelope Sitwell. Penelope is an excellent amateur pianist who studied in Paris, and I was invited to stay at Renishaw, the Derbyshire mansion, to play for a charity function she was organizing to reopen the ballroom at Renishaw, closed for many years. 
Renishaw is a beautiful and graceful house with wonderful associations. William Walton composed Facade to Edith Sitwell's poems, while Sasha Varel Sitwell, Rearsby's father, wrote a superb biography of Liszt. One of my most treasured possessions is a copy of this book inscribed to me by the author. I was very sensitive to the romantic and artistic history of Renishaw. Its atmosphere was alive with the imagination of poets and artists of great sensibility and genius. Over the chimney-piece in the dining-room hung a portrait of a boy wearing a pink satin suit who is said to haunt Renishaw. After I had finished playing, I decided to go to bed early so that I should be up in good time for my journey to Chequers the following day. Ted Heath had invited me to the first party of his premiership in 1970, and I could not possibly miss that. In the large, rambling house I got rather muddled in the various corridors and lost my way to my room. Finally I met a fellow guest who seemed to know his way about the house and kindly escorted me to my room. On the way we talked of ghosts. As I undressed for bed I thought over our conversation and wondered if indeed it was true that Renishaw had a ghost or ghosts. I went to sleep at once in the huge four-poster bed and I dreamed vividly. In my dream I was married to a passionate Italian and I awoke about three o'clock with the distinct sensation that I was being ardently kissed on the mouth. It was so real. I went to the bathroom for a cooling drink of water, put out the light again, and then I heard an extraordinary hissing sound emanating from the fireplace, followed by bangs such as one hears in Paris theatres before the play begins. I put my head under the bedclothes in terror and fell asleep. The next thing I knew was the housekeeper waking me up. She had brought me my breakfast tray. "'Did you sleep well?' she asked. I told her about my dream and the strange noises, and she nearly dropped the tray in my lap. Then Rearsby, wearing a dressing-gown, came in, smiling. "'Tell me everything,' he demanded. "'We have a ghost who kisses the girls.' "'Why should he kiss me?' I asked. "'It's the boy in pink. He's thanking you for reopening the ballroom.' I went to Chequers several times, and sometimes I was asked to play the piano for Ted Heath's guests. Ted has described himself as a romantic. He was and is a perfect host. He hosted a party of twelve friends to Glyndebourne, ordering a perfect dinner and excellent wine in advance. At Convent Garden, when his other guests refused drinks in the interval, Ted went to the bar and ordered champagne. "'I know more like champagne,' he explained." On another occasion, after a charity concert for which I had worn a black chiffon gown, he asked critically, "'Why did you wear that color?' "'I felt it was suitable for a classical pianist,' I replied. "'What would you have said if I had worn a bright lime-green dress?' "'I would just say that you look very charming, Mora,' he said. "'Don't wear black again.' Ted was also a religious man, and although he did not talk about it, had served an interesting period as news editor of The Church Times, a political fish in holy water, as he has described this period of his life. But when the press began to write about us in a more suggestive way, Ted was embarrassed, unhappy, and anxious, 
It was all nonsense, of course, to hint, as one or two newspapers did, that we might be about to marry. We were just the proverbial good friends. I rebuked him once, when he had been fishing, because he had not given me any of the cod he had caught. "'Of course not,' he replied. "'I know you only eat caviar.' You've been listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. If you like what you hear and want to support my creative endeavors, then simply go to ko-fi.com/pennyjohnson and you can buy me a lemonade. That's ko-fi.com/pennyjohnson. Thanks for your support.